All right, today I'm going to try to do something that I have not done for years. I'm going to try to preach a 20-minute sermon. All right, here we go. So this is going to be really packed full of information. We're going to jump right in. Are you ready? Take a big breath. We're going to jump. Here we go. The sermon is called Stumbling Over Expectations. Stumbling Over Expectations. In this season of Advent, we are singing and we are praying Come long expected Jesus. The phrase comes from an old Charles Wesley hymn that he wrote in 1744. We just sang it together. Ironically, sometimes we don't pay attention to the words that we sing. Let's reiterate them. The first verse goes like this. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us and let us find Our rest in thee, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Some longing hearts here, longing for peace, longing for clarity, longing for the assurance that this matters. May he be the joy of your longing heart today. In this season of Advent, we remember the birth of Jesus. We reflect on the significance of God's coming to earth to live and die as one of us. But even more than that, in this season, we are anticipating Jesus' promised return. And we are preparing for Jesus' promised return. And we are expecting Jesus' promised return. There is great power in expectation. Great power in expectation. Sometimes I go a whole day without eating. Do any of you do this? I wake up and it's like go and I hustle through the morning and I get through and I'm working through lunch and it's like four o'clock and I go, why am I? I haven't eaten all day. And then the awareness and the expectation that there will be food at home when I arrive. Maybe it'll just be yogurt in the refrigerator, maybe some beautiful Latin food. And that expectation, it starts to dominate my mind. It begins to actually motivate my actions, this expectation. Um, there are, there's great power in expectation. There's also risk in expectation. And the risk is that our expectations might not be met. We might have unrealized expectations. Things may not turn out as we want them to. Things may not turn out as we expected them to, as we hoped that they would. Last week, we looked at a scene from the life of a character in the Gospels named John the Baptist. And we saw last week how John called people not just to repent, but to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance, in other words, ought to result in something. This was the message of John the Baptist. Show me that you mean it, is a way that we might paraphrase what he said. Don't just say you're sorry. Do your sorry. Demonstrate the authenticity of your words with your actions. John plays a key role in the story of Jesus because John's um, role is to prepare the way for Jesus. John is called the forerunner. And it's John who first declares Jesus to be the, quote, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
It's John who points to Jesus as the long-expected Messiah, as the Savior of Israel and the whole world, as the one who is long-expected and is to come. When almost nobody knew who Jesus really was, maybe only his mother Mary knows his true identity, God reveals the truth to John, who then declares with bold assurance, this is the way it's recorded in John's gospel, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, John says, John the Baptist says, this is who I meant when I said, a man comes after me, has surpassed me because he was before me. John is saying, this is God. I have seen and I testify he is the Son of God. Today's gospel reading also features this character, John the Baptist, this man. But, but in the short time between Matthew chapter 3 which is what we read last week, in Matthew chapter 11, which is where we are today. It's a period of time that takes up less than a year chronologically. John's um, situation has dramatically changed. It has drastically changed. As a prophet, John spoke the truth, and he spoke it to power. And so when one of King Herod's sons, King Herod, who was in charge when Jesus was born, has died, now he's got several sons who have taken over the leadership of the area, one of the brothers takes the wife of another one of the brothers and dismisses his own wife. John calls him out on it and is consequently arrested. And so now instead of living under the wide open skies of the desert, John the Baptist is imprisoned in this dark dungeon under, Hebrew, under uh, Herod's fortress. And instead of boldly announcing that Jesus is the one, as he did in chapter 3 of Matthew, now chapter 11 of Matthew, he's sending his own disciples to Jesus with an apparently very different message. Now the message is, Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one? John had declared Jesus to be the long-expected Messiah, but now it seems Jesus is not living up to John's expectations. Here's the way the gospel reads Matthew chapter 11, starting with verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy, which is a skin disease, are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus' response is to point to action? He doesn't just say, yes, yes, I am. No, he points to action, kind of an echo of John's litmus test in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus puts the question back on John's disciples, in a sense. Well, what do you hear that I'm doing? And what do you see with your own eyes that I am doing? In other words, what's the fruit of my ministry? What can you point to? Go tell John that. And if we look at the previous chapters for answers to this question, in other words, if you just turn back your pages in your Bible a couple of times, what you're going to see is Jesus who is healing the sick. Even sick people in other towns who aren't even there with him, he heals them almost by remote. You see Jesus casting out demons 
evil spirits out of people, freeing them from oppression. There's a story about Jesus raising a dead girl back to life. And we see Jesus training up his disciples, his students, and sending them out to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. So John, who is now in prison and knows his death is near, sends his followers, his disciples, his students to Jesus with this surprising question. Are you the one? Or should we expect another? And Jesus responds by saying, go back and report to John what you've heard and what you see. And then Jesus adds this really perceptive statement here. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is the key verse for our morning. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, I have questions. I got a lot of questions. My main question is this. What is going on with John? Why is he sending this message to Jesus? What is he really asking? And to whom is he really asking it? And for whom is he asking it? Turns out there's a lot that is written about this question from John to Jesus. And the reason is that despite the severe changes in John's circumstance, namely that because he spoke truth to power, he's now been imprisoned and is soon going to be killed, it's still hard for the historic church to believe that John has really changed his mind about Jesus. That he's gone from declaring, Jesus is the one. Behold, look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away. That he now he's questioning, is are you the one? In in such a short time. In fact, most of the ancient sources on this text actually believe that John's faith has not been shaken. He's not changed his mind. And Jesus himself seems to indicate the same thing. When he addresses the crowd, after he gives his response to John's disciples and they're walking back to deliver the message, we didn't read this, but what happens next is Jesus turns to the crowd that is gathered and he asks them this question, who did you go out to the desert to see? A reed blowing in the wind? In other words, John has not changed his mind. He's not the kind of man that changes his views with every blowing of the wind. He's not a piece of grass in the breeze. That's not what's happening here. Okay, so then how do we understand John's question? Are you the one or should we expect another? There's three major views on how to understand this. The first falls along with this writer from the fourth century named Jerome, who believes that John knew that his death was near, and so he was sending his few disciples who had not already transferred their allegiance to Jesus Several of Jesus' 12 disciples were first disciples of John. John's asking this question according to this view, so that the few of his disciples, his students, who have not yet chosen to follow Jesus because of some hesitation, would come face to face with Jesus, have their questions addressed in person, and would ultimately recognize Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, some think that John's question is not for John, it's for the sake of others. John's not questioning. Others are questioning is Jesus the one? And so John is asking this question for them. That's one view. Another view articulated by this monk who becomes the leader of the Christian church in the sixth century, his name's Gregory the Great. He writes that John was well convinced that Jesus was the savior of the world. And by that, he means of the living. John was well convinced that Jesus was the savior 
of the living. John has been proclaiming this message with all of his heart. But now, and I love this, now John is staring at his own death. And so he's essentially asking Jesus, are you also going to save those who die? Because I'm about to die. And when I go to the dead, I will proclaim to them that you have come to bring salvation to the living. Not just that, but you have also come that to bring salvation to the dead. You will accomplish salvation for the dead as well. Gregory, who's writing this, imagines John's message as essentially saying to Jesus, Jesus, since you thought it worthy of yourself to be born for humanity, tell me whether or not you think it worthy of yourself to also die for humanity. Remember, this is happening early in the ministry of Jesus, right? We know nothing about his crucifixion yet. In this way, I, John says, in the imagination of Gregory, I who have been the herald of your birth, I will also be the herald of your death. I will announce your arrival in the netherworld as the one who is to come, just as I have already announced it on the earth. Gregory sees John the Baptist not just as the forerunner to Jesus, but the forerunner into hell, into the place of the dead. He's not doubting whether or not Jesus is the one for the living. He's just wondering, how far can we take this? Are you also the one who has come to save those who have died? (sighs) That is so intense. That is so intense. So powerful to me. And then still others, a third group, especially more modern writers, seem to have space in our minds that maybe John's confidence is shaken, and maybe it is. Maybe it's the dreadful hopelessness of the dungeon. Maybe it's that things are taking a lot longer than John thought they would. Maybe it's even that Jesus' methods are different than he expected. What kinds of methods did John expect? Do you remember what he expected? I've come baptizing with water, but someone else is going to come. He's going to baptize you with fire. He says, "Who, who told you to flee the coming wrath? John expects it to go down and to go down really soon. And Jesus is turning out to be a pretty compassionate Savior. Whatever it is, things are different enough from what John thought that he is now seeking some kind of assurance from Jesus. Are you the one? And so Jesus points John's disciples to his own actions and he says, Go back and tell John what you hear and what you see. And then Jesus looks right into the heart, and it's frankly not clear in the, in the original language whether he's looking into the disciple of John's hearts, whether he's looking into John's heart, or whether he's looking into your heart and my heart. But this is what he says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What does this mean? What is he saying? He's saying, you can expect me to rescue the whole world. You can expect me to rescue all of creation. That is who I am. I'm the Savior. My name's Jesus. It means God saves. That's why I'm here. I'm going to put it all back together again. You can count on that. But don't get too hung up on my methods. I might not do things the way you think they should be done. 
I might not adhere to the timetable that you prefer. The restoration of all things, it might turn out to look a little different than you think it should. For instance, how has Israel been saved in the past? What's his only, John's only reference point? It's been, Israel's been saved two different ways. One, through a dramatic act of God in the Exodus. God divides an ocean. And then in more recent times, Israel is saved through the, the, the strength of an especially gifted military leader, like Joshua or King David. But how's Jesus going to save the world? By dying. By being crucified on a Roman cross, the Jews are calling out for salvation, and it's not vague. They need salvation from the oppression of Rome, and now Jesus is going to accomplish that salvation. How? By being killed by Rome? I mean, this is not what anybody's expecting. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The Greek word translated stumble can also be translated does not take offense at me. And the Greek word is scandalizo. It's the word from which we get the word scandal. Blessed is anyone who is not scandalized by me. This is scandalous. Jesus is going to bring heaven to earth in a way that nobody expects Jesus is going to defeat sin and evil and death in a way that is scandalous. He's going to die. That's how he's going to accomplish his victory. And Jesus knows that his methods, in other words, his ways of doing things, are going to cause some people to question whether or not he really is the one. His methods are going to cause us to question his identity. His methods will cause us to question his identity. What about you? What about me? What about us? Have we ever questioned God? Have you ever said, God, I, I believe you, but what are you doing here? I don't understand the logic behind this, the purpose behind this. I don't understand why you're allowing this to happen, why you're allowing this challenge to come into my life at this time. Friends, it's not so much that I think we doubt Jesus. I think it's that we doubt the way Jesus does things. What are you thinking about this now? Why are you allowing this? To, wouldn't it be better just to wipe those guys out? When I'm, uh, when I'm uh, hit, wouldn't it just make more sense if I just hit him back harder? How does it make any sense to allow this person to die now with all these people depending on her? How does that make any sense to me? What, why are you taking so long to put the pieces back together again? We get all tripped up over Jesus. We stumble on his methods, on his ways of doing things. And Jesus said, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. It's like Jesus is saying to John's disciples, and Jesus is saying to you, friends, and he's saying to me, you're not going to understand everything I do. Some of my methods are not going to make sense to you. 
You're going to want fire and judgment, and I'm going to bring the water of compassion. You're going to want power, and I'm going to come in humility. You're going to want it right now, and I'm going to bring it later. Don't get tripped up. Don't stumble on my methods. Don't lose sight of the bigger picture and stumble over your own expectations of what this life with me is supposed to be like. And so we pray this prayer. We pray this plea, this cry. Come, long-expected Jesus. Come help us. Come rescue us. And friends, this is a cry of great hope, but listen, this is also a cry of surrender. It is. This is a cry of great hope. Come, long-expected Jesus. It is also a cry of surrender. The call for rescue is just that. It's a call for hope. It's a call for help. It's a call for help. We don't want to get so focused on how the help comes, on how the rescue comes, we don't want to stumble on the methods and the specifics so much that we miss out on the rescue. It's that sort of silly old story that maybe you've heard. I think to some degree there's truth to it. Here comes the flood. The guy calls out to God, rescue me. Comes a fire engine. We're here to rescue you. That's okay. God's got it. Water rises. Climbs to the top of the house, boat comes, we're here to rescue you, no problem, but God's going to save me, so don't worry about it. You've heard this, right? All the way to the top, now it's a helicopter. We're here to rescue you. That's okay, God's going to rescue me, goes to meet God, dies, <laughs> goes to meet God. What happened? Well, I sent three different rescuers for you, but you got, you got all tripped up on my methods, because it wasn't what you expected, you didn't receive the, the rescue. May we cry out, come, long expected Jesus. And, friends, may we be given the grace to surrender to his timing, to his methods, to his wisdom. May we wait for him with great expectation. May our stomachs long. May our bodies crave the return of God. May we long for his return, but may we wait for him with our heads bowed and our hands raised in submission, in submission, in surrender. Wesley's hymn ends like this, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. God, as we lean into this season of waiting, may our waiting be filled with expectation. May our expectation move us to action and to real hope. 
And I also pray for grace, Lord, in the midst of all the expectation to hold it loosely, the specifics, that your methods could be chosen by you, received by us, however they come. May your love minister to the hearts of those who are longing for you, who know what they need, got a clear picture of what they want. And if it doesn't show up just the same way they expect, this peace, this solution, this resolution, may they not stumble, walk away, in despair, but trust you. You are the returning king. You will come to restore what is broken. You are the salvation of the world. So we pray, come, long-expected Jesus. Amen. Amen.